This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths. Enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. expertise in perhaps the most newsworthy subject pervading our lives both personally and culturally, Dr. Tracy Marks is ready to address, advise, and help heal our nation's anxiety epidemic. She broadcasts over a million followers weekly on her YouTube channel and is a general and forensic psychiatrist of over 20 years. Dr. Marks' mission is to increase mental health awareness and understanding by educating people on psychiatric disorders, mental well-being, and self-improvement. She believes that insight creates change, both on a micro level, personal growth, and a macro level, reduction in fear and social judgment. Dr. Marks produces educational videos on her YouTube channel, Dr. Tracy Marks. As a forensic psychiatrist, she has formulated over 1,000 opinions through independent and medical evaluations, criminal assessments, or civil litigation consultations. She has been qualified as an expert in multiple federal and state courts and military court-martialed. She also maintains a general psychiatry clinical practice, focusing on mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and burnout. Dr. Marks has been sought after by CNN and HLN for forensic and general psychiatric commentary. Valeria interviews Dr. Tracy Marks, the author of Why Am I So Anxious? Powerful Tools for Recognizing Anxiety and Restoring Your Peace. Meet Dr. Marks at markspsychiatry.com and youtube.com backslash C backslash Dr. Tracy Marks. Here's the interview with Dr. Tracy Marks. In your own words, who is Tracy Marks? In my own words, well, um, I have to say it does take some effort to think about how to describe myself without using labels because we commonly do. I work for this or I'm a this, but um, I guess I would say I'm a curious soul who likes to um, help people understand themselves better. That is such a beautiful answer to me. And that's an answer that I often get from my guests when I ask them about the purpose of the human experience. They often say to help others. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, at the end of the day, all we're really left with is each other. And um, I've always said that I believe that relationships are our true currency. And 
um, we can build ourselves up to do this and do that and acquire this and that and the other. Uh, but at some point, those things go away. And and you still, if you have connections with people, then those things can last forever. And with that in mind, I mentioned off record just a few minutes ago about a video on your YouTube channel. It was about toxic relationships. That caught my attention immediately. It maybe it was because of this value that I hold that I always want to make the best out of any relationships. And sometimes it's not possible because they have issues that cannot be changed or fixed by a, a regular person like me. It would be more professional like yourself or others. How do we learn to be at peace with people that cause us to feel anxious? Yeah, that's... Um that's not a small order at all. <laughs> so true. <laughs> um, because I think if you're someone who likes to see people feel good or likes to make people feel good, um, you can feel compelled to hang in there with a relationship, um, even if it's toxic or not a good fit for you. And um, interestingly enough, that that video um, was one I could relate to on a personal level and a professional level. I noticed that, and because of my tendency to want to help people and things like that, um, I could be in a relationship where someone is exploitative in some way and just figure, well, if I love this person enough, they'll just, they'll be nice. Or I would take ownership of things that, um, this person would accuse me of doing or, you know, criticize me for and try and be better to make this person happy. And if you keep going in that direction, you can just lose your soul uh, trying to make yourself this for that person and make yourself something else for this other person. And so I think that if you have that experience where you feel like you're losing parts of yourself in relationships, you have to get to the point where you value yourself first. Um, you matter because if, if there's not much of you, then you don't have much to give to other people. So um, once you start setting boundaries and limits on how much someone can take from you, um, you can then... Um, realize that 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 other person is not going to be changed or improved by anything that you do, that that's something that they have to, to those are changes they have to make on their own. Right. That's such a, um, an insightful message to hear because, yeah, we often don't think that way. Like in my case, yeah, I always kind of value the relationship so much that I forget about myself so a lot of, a lot of times and boundaries those are crucial I'm learning at 45 now I'm learning to set them <laughs> yeah yeah um I was probably at that point too 40s um I think you start gaining more confidence that in that what you believe and feel 
is okay and it's okay for you to have an opinion or to say no or to disappoint someone because you're not doing something they want you to do because it doesn't serve you. Like I think the the older you get in and you gain maturity and it doesn't have to be until you, you become 40. I mean, you can start earlier with this, but nonetheless, I do think having that, you developing that kind of self-confidence is what helps you be able to draw lines in the sand and protect yourself. My other open question is about mental health. How do you define mental health these days? Mental health. Let's see. How would I define that? Well, I distinguish it from physical health. So I guess I would consider that um, the health of anything from the neck down (laughs) and um, from the neck up is that that involves your brain and your mind is your mental health. And um, unfortunately, well, actually, I think these days with all of the talk online and people coming out and acknowledging that they struggle with things like anxiety and depression and whatnot, it's made it more acceptable for people to um, appreciate what's going on with their mental health that mental health is a real thing and it's not just a weakness or a personality flaw and it is something to prioritize. So, um, yeah, I consider mental health having to do with anything involving your brain and your mind, which includes your thinking. Another question I have is about spirituality. Do you have spiritual views, ideas, belief systems? I do. I'm a Christian. I became a Christian um, in my college year. I don't know, maybe it was like my senior year of high school. But anyway, in those kind of late teen, teens, early 20s years. And um, But even before that, before I came more committed to my faith, I grew up in going to church whether I understood why I was going or not, I still went through the process of going to church as um, a practice. But as far as deepening um, my beliefs about what happens after I die and the purpose of life and what gives me my real strength, um, that came later in my early 20s. It takes time for us to... um find those ideas, those concepts that really fit us in a way. I do believe that we can agree and, let's say, have an open conversation around unconditional love. That's what I I see as like the main goal of spirituality in general, or religiosity or whatever it is that has to do with that realm of the unknown. It's unconditional love. That doesn't sound realistic to have that, to cultivate that in a human body. But yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that, Tracy. Yes. So even though, um, so I'm specifically uh, of the Christian faith, and there's lots of other religions out there, um, still, even if you take, say, um, religion out of that, you know, any specific doctrine out of that, Spirituality at its core really is more about being in touch with, um, trying not to use the word spiritual and defining yeah. spiritual, but right, right. <laughs> being in touch with um, a belief system, 
um, a value system um, that's outside of just general um, societal norms. So you you believe you know even though it's against the law to physically harm someone, you still believe at your core that it's wrong to harm people and that maybe what comes around goes around. If you treat someone badly, things come back to you or you that takes away from from who you are when you harm other people. And so I think the presence of us, us having spiritual beliefs is what helps people see the need to want to love people um, regardless of what they get back in return mm. from what they give. Yeah, it's such a, an interesting kind of idea to contemplate. Yeah, and without using the word spiritual, right? Because I don't think it's needed even. It's just common sense to me, helping one another. As you said earlier about relationships, that's what we're left with in the end. So why not cultivate, right, that, each other? Absolutely. Actually, I do want to add something to that. So on the issue, though, of unconditional love, I think something that gets in the way of showing love to people is an insecurity um, of about your own needs being met. So if I, if I have, if I'm starved for validation, I'm going to feel threatened if I see you get something positive. And instead of me, you know, showing you love and congratulations, I'm so happy for you. I feel like I need to get something uh, or I can feel like I'm losing something because I didn't get what you got and that you're happy and I'm not. And that can make me be insulting toward you and not be loving. So um, I do think uh, something that keeps people from loving unconditionally is feeling the, uh, a threat to themselves in some way that, that they're, they're either not being validated um, or feel like have a, a scarcity mindset, like there's only so much good to go around. So if you're getting, then that means I'm losing. So I can't feel love towards you. In fact, I feel envy. That sounds very much like competition, being very competitive. And it sounds like a mental problem. <laughs> I don't want to say it that way, but <laughs> I have to. <laughs> it's uh, not healthy. It doesn't sound healthy. And I know that we all, at some level, we experience those kinds of feelings and emotions toward other people. But I really believe in the acting. I mean, the way my perspective is from my observing my own mind, it's just thoughts that come and go all the time. And I don't have to engage with all of them. So I just let them go. The ones that don't serve me or others, I just let them go pretty fast. That's a great approach to dealing with that. Um, and even that, you know, I guess... I probably have more of a, a pathological bit because this is what I deal with a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, right. so, and, and yeah, I agree that that's more of a, a personality issue to have that feeling of um, feeling threatened because something good happened to you. Um, and it can also be a byproduct of your upbringing and things like that. So, you know, it's not always someone's fault that that's how they act. Um, and I do think it takes some um, soul searching and introspection to be able to get to where 
you can let some of these thoughts pass Mm. and not feel them as threatening. I love the observation you just made about the um, upbringing and our environment. So if we are in the environment that is uh, constantly kind of expecting giving those uh, behaviors from us, so that's what we give, unfortunately. It's, well, mm-hmm. in a lot of us, that's the only thing we know. So uh, it's sad uh, to even contemplate, kind of reflect on, on those ideas, but it is what it is for now. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we are changing that um, somehow by working with our own selves, our own minds, and kind of, as you said, kind of becoming more introspective and realizing what our own lives can be individually without abiding with society or its rules at that level of collective thinking. So I do believe in that kind of freedom that we can think differently and behave differently. We don't have to be like everyone else or do what everybody else does to fit in. Correct. And that is a freedom. I think it it really is that you have the freedom to think that way and not be burdened by uh, rules that you think you need to uh, abide by. Yes. Oh, my God, Tracy. And I have tried so hard to fit in, and that's when I suffered the most. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. then changed everything when I was able to see clearly that I had the the option to think for myself, and uh, I didn't have to follow but it's still a dance because we can't really live like again on our own. So it is, is this dance with um, the challenges and making the best of it. Very true. I mean, you you are influenced by your environment. So if everyone in my household uh, is angry and lashes out when they're frustrated and things like that, I mean, I can only hold up so long yeah. in that you right. know, before <laughs> I might be pulled into it and start doing the same thing just to protect myself emotionally from that attack rather than um, do the more um, mature thing of going off and just realizing that that's them and I'm me and blah, blah, blah. That's ideal, but it doesn't always work out that way. You can't always, I'll speak for myself, I can't always be that strong. So you wrote the book, Why Am I So Anxious?, Powerful tools for recognizing anxiety and restoring your peace. Such an amazing work. I read the book, not everything, but a lot of what caught my attention in there, because I'm very interested in the mind, of course, how it works from your perspective as a psychiatrist. So it's just incredible how many tools you you have there. I mean, it's almost, it becomes almost like a, a guide to general mental health. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> so thank, thank you for you. doing the work. Wow, that's so detailed. I mean, it's just beautiful work. Thank you for doing that because it will help and it should help a lot of people. So talk to me about the main intention and inspiration to write your book and what's the purpose? What was and is the purpose of having this book out there? Sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for your compliment. I really appreciate that. Um, I guess I would say that, um, the overall purpose of the book really is to be like a guide that equips people with lots of options to address anxiety 
And then also the first half of the book is giving people a better understanding of what makes them anxious. Um, Sometimes it's a disorder and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's your personality. Um, And so where your anxiety comes from, I think, helps you understand what you should do about it when it arises when you should get professional help versus help yourself. And then uh, it's when it comes to all of the different options and the tools that I talk about in the book, one of the frustrations in my own practice, because I'm, I'm still practicing seeing patients, is the people with anxiety, there just seemed like um, I would we would get to a point with some people where things were fairly calmed and they were they were doing okay on their medication but anxiety never clinical anxiety that is never goes away 100% it ebbs and flows it goes up and down and so there are times in your life when it can be manageable and you don't you may not even need any kind of medication or formal treatment and you manage it and then other times where it becomes unmanageable and you may need professional help so in the times of it being manageable, how do you manage it? And I would talk with patients about non-medication options, and I would hear things like, well, that doesn't work, or I tried that and that didn't help. And I heard, I heard that so much that I started to believe, well, I guess these things are good ideas, but they don't really work. <laughs> and somebody came up with this stuff and it sounds good, but so... And then I, it, it hit me that it's not that um, these things don't work. They don't work for everything all the time for everyone. And so some of the things that you can do for your anxiety may help, say, a panic attack that you're having. But in, if you're not in the throes of a panic attack and you're worrying, um, there, there's different tools that you can use to manage that, like meditation being one. But if you're hyperventilating in a panic attack, you're not going to, unless you're a very experienced meditator, you're not going to be able to just click into meditation and have your panic attack go away. So it's, it's what you do depends on what you're experiencing and what the problem is. And so the idea is that you stack tools and options and you learn what works for you when so that when something happens, you can like pull from your toolbox, so to speak, uh, and do this and do that. And and the cumulative effect of all of those things, it's what helps you manage how you feel. How do we learn to recognize from healthy, normal anxiety and clinical, I think you call pathological anxiety? Right. So normal um, I would call it reactive anxiety, is usually a response to a situation. Now, someone who has uh, a clinical disorder, like let's say social anxiety or generalized anxiety, let's say not social anxiety, generalized anxiety, uh, with generalized anxiety, people tend to worry about a lot of things, almost anything. You can worry about world peace and have trouble (laughs) sleeping because of that. (laughs) That is, yeah, true. (laughs) So that person can still um, uh, have a ramp up in their anxiety level if, say, they hear that there's a predator loose in their neighborhood. 
But the person without a clinical disorder may hear that information, get worried about it. Um, but their, their worry doesn't necessarily keep them from sleeping. They can take some precautions. We're going to lock up the house. We're going to make sure the alarm's on and all of that. And then let's say if they're a spiritual person, we're just going to trust that we're going to be okay. And we're going to pray about this. And we're going to feel confident that we'll wake up in the morning. Whereas the person uh, for whom the anxiety is, is uh, overwhelms them, that person may not be reassured by their the doors being locked. They still may not be able to sleep a wink. And after a couple of nights of that, now they can't go to work because they can barely think or they can hardly even drive. They may not be eating. So the real answer in those both of those scenarios is how much does the angst, I'll call it, that you feel interfere with your normal everyday life functions, your ability to work or go to school if you're not working, um, which we call that occupational functioning and includes school, your personal or your, your social functioning, how you are interacting with people. So are you so anxious that you are um, yelling at people in your home? You're um, really short with, with almost anybody in your relationships, telling off your boss at work. Um, and then your, your personal individual functioning, are you hardly taking showers? Um, are you not eating and you've lost about five pounds because you don't have any appetite? So that's how we, so anxiety can be on a spectrum or the symptoms can be on a spectrum from mild reactionary and then they kind of resolve when the, when the thing that triggered it goes away versus um, even if it is triggered by something being what we call pervasive or lasting a long time and having all of these damaging effects on your life, that would be the more pathological anxiety response. One of the interesting things that I observe within myself is overthinking. Well, there are moments, especially when it's something's new, like a change, that we are about to move, something just happens that's completely different. And then the mind just takes over and it kind of holds on to almost every thought that comes in. And that's an um, interesting thing to observe, kind of be a witness to, which I usually am. But my question is, is there a difference between anxiety and overthinking? Or they are one and the same in a way? So anxiety, you could think of anxiety as just a blanket term for having an anxious or distressed distressing reaction to something um, or the behaviors that are in response to feeling anxious. So worrying is one of those things. Um, here's, a, here's an example of having worrying type anxiety that's not necessarily to the degree of a disorder. I'll use my husband as an example. I'm sure he'll never listen yeah. to this or even care. <laughs> yes, that'd be good. <laughs> But he is one, he tends to be more on the anxious side, I would call it. I wouldn't say he has a disorder. He's never gotten any kind of treatment or has no desire to get any kind of treatment. But if he has pain in his hip, he will start 
looking on the internet to see what the problem is, I can tell him, well, it's probably the 10 miles you ran yesterday or the 100 pounds you tried to lift. And he may say, okay, yeah, you're probably right. But later on, he'll forget what I said and start looking up stuff again and almost like be ready to get surgery on his hip. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, when the pain goes away, all that behavior and worrying and preoccupation goes away. So it's not causing him any significant problems. Sometimes it, it gets irritating you know, or annoying in my house hearing these questions over and over. But, um, but nonetheless, it's not causing any real uh, functional problems for him. So it just kind of comes and it goes. So overthinking, it's connected to anxiety in the sense of um, the grasping. It's almost like um, a belief system in itself. <laughs> yeah. It, so with him, I would, and this kind of matches up a little bit with what I was talking about the book about anxious personalities and temperaments. So with him, I'd say he has more of an anxious temperament. He's he's more prone or easily, can be easily become flustered or worried about something. Um so the two of us, you know, can be presented with the same stressor, um, like being late to the airport, <laughs> I mean, late late for a flight. And he will start going down the road of we're going to we're going to miss our flight and we're not yeah. we're not going to be <laughs> able to go out tonight. We have to come back home. Yeah. And I'm sitting there. I'm worried, too, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm not taking it to that degree. So it's it's easier for him to just become unraveled by by things but he'll he'll pull it back together so again he doesn't have a disorder that needs uh some professional attention but he does he that unraveling that can happen with him is something that he could work on because it does give him distress to sit there and start worrying about all this stuff so that's kind of um an explanation of how some people can be more prone to getting worked up and distressed, but not still not necessarily have an anxiety disorder. It seems like it has to do, I think you mentioned this in your book too, with the tendency to be negative, to kind of hold down to negative thoughts and really believe that something bad will happen. Yeah, so that's related to neuroticism. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, you people have probably heard a lot, or oh, you're so neurotic. And neurotic is a uh, personality construct, but it's the tendency uh, toward becoming negative or depressed or anxious, both of those kind of mental states, uh, having having more of a tendency to get into that mental state. That's amazing. It really amazes me a lot of times. Like I went through a lot of um, uh, hardships as a child. I didn't have a good one, abuse, physical, emotional, all that. And because of my curiosity of what to do about it, and although I got myself so many times in trouble throughout life trying to get out of that entanglement, but I noticed how I became a lot more interested in anything that had to do with healing, anything, having conversations, reading, doing whatever somebody would suggest that would make sense to me. And a lot of times I wonder why some of us I'm not able to recognize those signs, you know, of self-destruction, of patterns of negativity. I really wonder why they can't see, like they're not aware of those symptoms. Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, What makes some people more introspective and others not? Um, 
it's probably a temperament issue as well, but some people can go through life, have a lot of hard knocks growing up. I mean, let's face it, um, we're all flawed individuals and flawed people make mistakes and when they're raising their children and those children are subject to having consequences from those mistakes. Now, so, and, and, and those mistakes can be my, relatively minor, but all, all that to say, uh, most people aren't perfect, nor are most people raised perfectly. And the con- and what, how you respond to some of the trips and falls that you experienced growing up um, can lead to more permanent consequences, like, let's say, marrying the wrong person. You have a negative uh, experience with your opposite sex parent. And so now you start seeking um, someone who's similar to at some at some unconscious level beyond your awareness, trying to redo or make that relationship right. So you still end up in this kind of same dynamic of one that was hurtful to you. And now you're repeating it again. Um that person could end up staying in, a, in that bad, let's say you marry the person, in that bad marriage for, you know, the next 30 years, unhappy, but never really raise their hand to themselves saying, why am I unhappy? How did I end up here? Um, they may just may see it as, um, and they blame themselves for, I, I should have known, I shouldn't have married this guy, and so on and so forth, and never make any connection back to, I was vulnerable to this kind of person because of my upbringing. I think some people are are a little more prone to recognize that and others not recognize it without a therapist helping them recognize it and others not. And they may, and may think more concretely about it. Like, well, it's because I got married at, at 21. If I hadn't gotten married at 21, I wouldn't have married this person and I'd be happier. We're all so different, right, Tracy? That's what it is. So it depends on our conditionings, our programs, belief systems. I see for myself that I really try, I guess, instead of trying to fix the situation or somebody else or trying to find out the reasons why, which they're, they're very interesting to me. They're, they sound very much like stories. I really try to be as present as I can to what is happening that's a spiritual practice, so you know, so the audience will know. So I try to be present to whatever is happening and kind of going deeper within those feelings and emotions in the moment and, and see if the body and the mind can deal with them in the, the most peaceful way possible. So that's my strategy. And of course, I use a lot of the tools that you mentioned in the book, meditation, mindfulness, grounding. Um, nutrition, of course, sleep, all that. And it really helps, though. And I know that at some point, for some of us, it will be necessary to change the situation because we might be around people who are abusive and they might not stop. And then, you know, just using those coping mechanisms, it doesn't really help. And with that in mind, I know we are talking about your book, which is titled, again, Why Am I So Anxious?, is I have to mention on your website, I think in the first page, you have two blog posts, one that caught my attention, both of them did. (laughs) Too much positivity is problematic, that's one. And the other one is what is good girl syndrome? 
those two, I mean, most right away too, caught my attention because a lot of us, especially women, we try so hard to make the world a better place, yes. <laughs> but in the sense of our own house too, everything <laughs> around us. So I would love to hear yeah, from you a bit more about those two ideas. Yeah. So the good girl thing um, can really, um, on a bigger level, can be... Wait, let me start this over. Back when I was growing up, a good girl was one who waited until she got married to have sex with the person she's dating and, you know, doesn't date a lot of guys and things like that. And that's not what this concept is about, being a good girl. It's the idea of really being a people pleaser and and not um, sacrificing yourself to make someone else happy. And um, in a similar vein... Toxic positivity um, can kind of relate to this in that with toxic positivity, you um, dismiss real negative emotions um, because at, for whatever reason, your upbringing, your, 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 the stories you tell yourself that negative feelings aren't acceptable. And so the way you, you deal with it is to dismiss it and just uh, switch it out for well, it's all going to be okay. Um, uh, what 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 doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That saying in general, what's wrong is not fully acknowledging how things are really affecting you and telling yourself it's all going to be okay while you're still um, managing or dealing with the negative emotions that you really feel. You're just not admitting to it. And so there's value in processing negative feelings by recognizing um, this happened and I, or let's say, you know, we're in a pandemic, we're not technically anymore, but I guess we should be, but we're in a pandemic and I feel isolated, lonely and angry that this hasn't gotten under control and things like that. But we all, we still have to move on. We have to make the best of it. I'm going to find different ways to uh, feel connected to people and so on and so forth. Those are all the, the ways to cope in a positive way. But if I try and act like I'm not really angry about what's going on or that I don't cry at night because I feel very lonely or wonder what's going to happen to me and all of these things, um, if I just try and stuff that down, all it, all I'm doing is putting on a front and those mm. negative feelings will show themselves in some way. Ah, what a great advice. <laughs> is that the same when you talk about the good girl syndrome? Is that similar to being too positive? Oh, this is a different topic. <laughs> uh, n- no, it is connected. So yes, with the good girl syndrome, not only are you not wanting to uh, disappoint people, but you also want to give an air or maintain an air of it's all good. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong. Um, I, I don't have any needs. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing the right thing and I'll continue to do the right thing, that sort of thing. And, um, and so you're still, it's still at some level, uh, 
connected to this idea that I can't acknowledge anything negative about a situation, whether it be about myself or or the way I feel. But um, and and so let's all just let's all just play along and be friends and <laughs> you know and and I'm not going to stir up any trouble. Uh, I'm not going to disagree with you, even though I do disagree with you. Um, that sort of thing. I'm not going to own my own feelings. What I do is a lot of uh, communication, and I try to be as clear, as kind as possible, too. But a lot of times, the what I'm trying to say doesn't come across. It's not heard. Going back to the topic of anxiety, I think that's the only anxiety that I have these days. When my husband gets negative about something, then it kind of um, what I want to do really is to, of course, acknowledge my own feelings. I'm not feeling good about this, but also kind of distance myself emotionally and then have a conversation with him. But then a lot of times he, it seems like it's the way you say things, but I do try to be very clear and kind, but even then it doesn't really work a lot of times. What is the best thing to do in relationships when we are dealing with, um, again, that same question with people that cause us anxiety? Do we try to talk to them or do we send them straight to you, Tracy? <laughs> that would be the best thing to do, actually. <laughs> best thing. <laughs> well, you know, I think when it comes to, if it's someone you're close to, it doesn't have to be your partner, it could be a friend. But I think being honest is the best thing you can do. So, and this also connects with uh, good girl or toxic positivity, because there's a dishonesty about both of those, those ideas. Um, so in the example of my husband uh, getting worked up about stuff and thinking that he has cancer or whatever it is, um, and I, I'm not always good at this. There are times I'm like, stop it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> but <laughs> an honest convert, if I, to be honest with him, in a in a non with, with a with a positive tone, or I guess with a non condescending tone, would be something like, um, "So I know that you're worried about this, but I I have to admit, sometimes when you get really worked up about this, it makes me anxious too. So it's hard for me to listen to this. So just know that I, I feel bad that you're worried, but I'm not always going to be able to respond." Uh, with the best empathy or understanding, because especially if I start feeling anxious myself. And what I'm doing is just giving him a heads up that um, I, I care about him and I don't want to say hurtful things back to him uh, or make him feel bad. But what he's doing has an impact on me as well, has a negative impact on me. And so I'm not going to be perfect at having this perfect therapist response to all his stuff. Yeah, the takeaway here, it's um, honesty. So always being true to our own feelings and to others, expressing that that truth. Ah, it takes courage, doesn't it? Tracy? <laughs> a lot of courage. <laughs> Don't be that and honest. Probably the best time to be honest is not in the moment, but after words say, uh, okay, look, <laughs> right. when this happens, uh, it, it gets me worked up or it makes me mad or you know, whatever the emotion is. And I really don't want to make you feel bad, but sometimes 
I might just because of blah, 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 you know? So a question, a, a, a conversation you have after things have settled down. So your book, I made so many notes here. We would go on forever. I love the, um, there's a section where you talk, it caught my attention also immediately about existential anxiety in life crisis. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then the substitutes <laughs> for purpose. That really, nah, the way you say that too, you said when you struggle with existential anxiety, you may find other activities to fill the void that isn't filled with purpose. And then um, you list compensatory behaviors identified by existential therapy or therapist, I think Dr. Aaron Keshen. Yes, yes. He, he, he came up with that construct. Um, yeah, of certain uh, purpose substitutes, he called them. So when you are flailing about without much purpose, uh, you might start um, excessively engaging in other things that really aren't meaningful to you. And that could be as basic as drinking too much, or it could be something that can appear like it's good, like getting over-involved in some um, club or something that really is not what you want to do, but y- you you end up just kind of eating up a lot of time with giving the appearance to yourself that you're doing something, but it's really not what you want to be doing. Um, but of course, other things like overeating or uh, watching, binge watching too much Netflix. Yeah, Things like that, that fill your time, yeah. but really <laughs> don't have much purpose. That purpose and, and, and the purpose is defined the, the, the importance or the value of the purpose is defined by you. So it's not as though it's got to be stuff that looks good. I'm, you know, I'm on this board of the Children's Society of blah, blah. No, it's something that you find meaningful. That resonates true to me as well. I often wonder about working too much, although like what I do, what you do and so many amazing people that I talk to here, what we do, it really feels very meaningful deep, like incredibly beautiful. But sometimes I notice that I can get anxious for doing it too much, kind of yes. overworking. And I'm wondering why. And a lot of times I, I would say it's just to get away from certain, even my husband sometimes, <laughs> he's just too much. And then I just kind of lock myself in the room and start kind of working on what I have to work. Of course, I have so much work to do that I, I just engage in all this doing instead of being around people that I cannot have these conversations with. Correct. Yeah, I'm guilty of that too. I'll have all these big ideas. All of the ideas require a lot of work. I need to do this and I need to do that and I need to set this up. And so um, I can get lost in my ideas and then start doing the work. And then before I know it, I have no time. No one's able to talk to me because I'm working. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and yeah, I, I have that, I've had that problem. And one of the things that kind of has put me on the path of a course correction, because I would, I will say 2020 and 2021 were really, really, really busy times for me partly because I got busy in my practice um, with the pandemic and doing telemedicine. And then I was writing the book. But my um, my father passed away earlier this year in 2022. And 
that really, one of the things, one of the ways it affected me was I saw how um, probably the last six months of his life, even though he was really sick, I didn't have, I, I was so busy writing and all that, I couldn't spend that much time with him. And I thought, you know, all this stuff I'm doing, uh, as I was saying at the at the beginning of the of this interview, of at the end of the day, what we're left with is relationships and and connectedness. If I'm absent all the time because I'm working, um, I lose all that. And so I need to value the time I have with people right now and not be thinking, well, it, let, let me just finish this. You know, after I yeah. get past this, <laughs> yes, yeah. then I'll have all this time. That that day may never come. And I've got to make it come by making it be here today and not in five years after I retire or, you know, whatever I was seeing as some relief from being too busy. And that's one of the you also mentioned in your book, it's one of the anxiety types, uh, death anxiety that mm-hmm. most of us have. Yeah, I love these reflections, these conversations, and just uh, going deeper into what life is all about. And I love that you said that many times throughout the interview, or enough times, about relationships, and that in the end, this connectivity, that's what matters. So the book is just incredible. You have all these tools that um, made me think, reflect, stop. So it's um, highly beneficial. It, I mean, it will help so many people if they can just give that a chance and just read it, get a copy. So thank you so much for doing what you do. It's divine work in my eyes. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. What is true power? What comes to mind when you hear those two words together? I'll tell you, the first thing that comes to mind is influence, um, that power requires influence, and influence is based on relationships. I love that. My last question is, what three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? You know, I can really only think of two that I think are the most important. And one is to love someone. And the second is to be loved by someone. And I think that there's all, there's, lots of kinds of love and the and the way you can actually experience love whether it be a romantic relationship a family relationship um and probably the deepest uh form of love that i've experienced is loving my child and holding a child who needs you and relies on you for safekeeping. And not everyone can have a child. So I don't want, you know, that's not one of the things on this list of everyone needs to experience having a child because not everyone will. But you can still um, experience love in, in whatever form it comes for you. And I think, I think it would be a tragedy to go through life without that. 
what comes to mind, I guess, in, to heart too, is sometimes it's really a challenge for us to feel loved. It seems like it's easier to love others, but it's not as easy to feel loved all the time, perhaps throughout our, our entire lives. So would you say that even the, uh, the short experience of love, would that make this life worthy and still beautiful, even if it is short? Absolutely. I think if you have, if you feel, if you genuinely feel loved by someone and that person is gone for whatever reason, um, a breakup or a death or move away or just lose track, lose connection, um, just having that experience of having that two-way exchange, I think, uh, is, uh, it, it means you've made it, <laughs> you know, you've had that experience. But, you know, I will say, uh, to piggyback on what you said about actually feeling love, um, similar to what we were talking about earlier with the freedom um, to be able to um, disregard things and um, is kind of have peace about something, even in the setting of it, of, of a negative situation. Um, similarly, I think um, you need, not everyone can feel love, as you were saying. So it's not as though, I, I think what in, in my answer, I'm really talking about having, being fortunate enough to have someone who loves you whether you experience it or you 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 are convinced that they love you or not um but i guess then part 3 would be to be able to actually experience that love but if someone struggles with loving themselves it's going to be hard for them to feel like other people love them especially feel like people love them unconditionally and they may feel like they've got to earn love and things like that whereas real love um, shouldn't it really doesn't have to be earned per se. I mean, yeah, you can't just treat people however, and then they love you. But um, you can, someone can actually can love you as flawed as you are. Um, but if you struggle with um, self esteem and self love, you can feel like your flaws are too great for someone to really love you. They may say they do, but they don't, and therefore not really experience the joy of feeling of being loved by someone. Thank you so much again for your beautiful presence in our reality, for the work you do, the way you express yourself with so much honesty and openness. Thank you for everything, for being who you are. It's just beautiful to me, very close to my heart, this, what you represent. So thank you again. And thank you, Valerie. Thanks for bringing this out in me. <laughs> oh, I love <laughs> I mean, this these is things. a great conversation. <laughs> oh, my God. This is my sacred space, Tracy. <laughs> so before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, your book, and future projects? Well, everything can be found on my website, which is Mark's Psychiatry, and that's M-A-R-K-S as in Sam, and then the word psychiatry.com. And that's where you can find all of my social handles, which I'm on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok are the main places where I I live. Uh, YouTube more than the other two, but I'm still on those other platforms as well. And my handles on those are Dr. Trace, 
what is it? Dr. Tracy Marks. So it's D-R and then Tracy, T-R-A-C-E-Y, Marks, uh, is my handle on all three of those platforms. And then the book um, is also found on my website, but and then it links out to the places where you can buy it, but it will be on Amazon and uh, bookstore.com and Barnes and Noble and um, hopefully in some local bookstores as well. But probably the easiest way would be to get it online. And it will be available as hardcover, um, digital, and audiobook for people who prefer to listen. Oh, wonderful. I'll have your website link and the YouTube channel link on your podcast profile. Those two links. Thank you so much again, Tracy. And we'll talk soon. Bye for now, my dear. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Tracy Marks and her work, please visit markspsychiatry.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.